this morning that I shouldn't have done, or I didn't. Uh, I didn't do something, which was ask Stuart to come up and speak. Uh, I'm not going to ask him just now, but just in case I forget, if I get a bit carried away, if I forget, Stuart, come up anyway. And if I forget, just shout at me Stuart or something, and uh, he will come. Uh, we looked at Ephesians this morning. I want to look at Ephesians again. <clears throat> We're going to look at chapter 6 from verse 5 to verse 9. It's on page 1177. Page 1177. And for those of you who weren't here this morning, we saw that from verse 22 on to these verses, verse 9, Paul is dealing with three major relationships that we have, <clears throat> husbands and wives, and sorry, it's my voice, I, sh- I really sh- should resist the temptation to sing, um, husbands and wives, and children and parents, and now this one, slaves and masters, or in our context, we would say employers and employees, so I do want to say something uh, about slavery. I'll read the words, first of all, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does, whether He is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, it's quite extraordinary that for such a major part of our life, work, we don't expect all that much teaching from God's Word or um, in the church about uh, our relationship with work. And when we're teaching uh, about work, I'm also aware that it's a bit like teaching about marriage. There are people who are not married. Of course, there are people who don't have paid employment, which is what we are going to look at. There are some who are retired, some, although as John Piper says, uh, no Christian ever truly retires. Uh, amen. <laughs> You're just about to retire, Chris. Are you not? No, that's right. You're not going to retire. Good. That is excellent. You do not. I mean, can you imagine? People live in this world, honestly. They, they live and they think, I'm just dying for that day when I get to be 60 or 65, and then I'll get to retire. And I think it's Piper, and it's a great sermon, I remembered it, where he, he talks about how uh, this couple who all their life have saved so they can get a boat in Florida to collect seashells off the shore. And he says, that's it. That's what you want to do with your life. You want to retire. Now, we, uh, as Chris says, or I, I said, and he said, amen too, and the rest of you should be saying amen as well. Christians don't retire. Not in that sense. But there are people as well who are ill. There are people who are unable to work. There is people who want to work. We have people in our own fellowship who would like to have work, but there doesn't appear to be work available. And there are people, of course, who are just dead lazy and who think, why should I bother working when someone else can pay for me? Um, The Christian view of that from God's Word, that latter is just simply this. If you don't work, you don't eat. Um, But 
there is obviously a great deal of Christian concern for those who, for what we would call the dignity of work and the opportunity of work and being satisfied with work. But I'm not going to look at, at all of those things this evening. I want to look at what this has to say about those of us who are in work. And if you are not in work, then again, it's something to pray for and to pray for those who are there. Because for most of you, much of your week this coming week is going to be spent at work. How does your Christianity fit in with that? Some of you have to travel a considerable distance to get work. Some of you feel under pressure. You have to do work at home. Some of you, um, for example, there are people who work up at Nine Wells. I still don't understand why doctors are, should work 12-hour shifts. That doesn't make any sense to me. But nonetheless, some people uh, will do that. Some people will look at someone like me and say, well, it's okay. You've only worked one day a week on a Sunday, and you only do a few hours. Um, what do you know? Uh, but I have a job as well, and work is a big, big part of our life, and getting the work-life balance right is actually quite difficult. Also, we have to say this, in terms of evangelism and witness, you are, the people you are going to be the best witness and the worst witness to, first of all, your family, those you live with, and secondly, your workmates, and therefore, it's very, very important that we hear what the Bible has to say. So let's turn to this passage. Let me say something, first of all, about slavery. Because when you are <clears throat> debating or discussing with people, they'll say things like, oh yeah, but the Bible advocated and supported slavery. Now that's a position of ignorance, but sadly many Christians don't know how to answer that. So let me explain to you the situation that existed here. Doesn't it say in the Bible, slaves obey your earthly masters? with respect and fear. And so the immediate images of uh, slaves in America and whips going and the church telling, well, you've just got to obey your masters. That's the image that people have in their head. But we have to go back to the New Testament time, to the New Testament context, to understand what that slavery is. And incidentally, let me point out that slavery in the sense of people being sold, we thought that was gone in Britain but it's now back. CARE estimate that there are at least 20,000 slaves. That is, not people who are employed, but people who have been bought, uh, mostly working in what they euphemistically call the sex industry, but in other places as well. And there are an awful lot of in-betweens. For example, there are, uh, some of you may remember the uh, incident off the shores of Liverpool, where a number of Chinese people died when they were collecting. They, were, they had a, a gang master, the part of gangs, and some of the uh, Eastern Europeans who come to work here sometimes come as part of that, and a considerable proportion of their income is paid to their masters, as they are called. And it is, it seems, certainly seems to be a form of slavery. But in the New Testament, the situation was this. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in New Testament times, at the time when this letter was written. It included not only domestic servants, um, cleaners, and, and all the rest of it, but if you were a doctor, you were a slave. All of you who are up at Nine Wells, and you're working to be doctors because you're top of the, you know, it's a good thing to be, and so on. In this culture, you were a slave. If you were a teacher, you were a slave. Uh, we've had one or two 
new teachers, Jillian is a new teacher, and we pray for Jillian, and uh, it's, it's great. But if you're a teacher, you were a slave. If you were an administrator, Maddie, you were a slave. Uh, <laughs> don't, nod your, don't nod your head so enthusiastically. <laughs> you and Sylvia are going there. <laughs> you were, you were, Aristotle said this about slaves. A slave is a human tool. Legally, slaves were with, did, had no rights, and rights over the slaves included death. In the Roman Empire, you, you could put a slave to death, and you could not be punished for that. Slaves were often whipped, mutilated, and imprisoned in chains. There were a wide variety of practices. There was a great deal of kindness. The philosopher Seneca spoke of the brotherhood of man and in, incorporated in that the idea of kindness to slaves. Now, it's in that context and in that culture that the New Testament comes, and you have to understand the writing at that time, first of all, before you can apply it to the writing in our time. For you simply to say, or for me simply to say, slavery is wrong, uh, this shouldn't be here, Paul should be writing, slavery is wrong, and so on, it, you don't understand where he is coming from or what he's trying to do. No New Testament writer comments on the origins of slavery. There is no theological support for slavery or justification for human beings owning other human beings. Not in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, I would argue the same thing, though I would argue the circumstances are different, and I'm sticking uh, with the new at the moment. There is no doubt at all that many of the early Christians were slaves. In fact, Christianity was known as the slave religion. And there were other Christians who were owners of slaves. That could be difficult. You have a whole book. It's not a big book, but Philemon, just one chapter, but which is dealing with the subject of what do you do when you've got two people in a church, one is the slave owner and one is the slave, and in Philemon's case, when uh, Onesimus runs away and meets up with Paul in Rome and is, is, is sent back with this letter to the church. Now, in the New Testament, it is clear there is no revolutionary program suggested by Paul or others to deal with the evils of slavery or its total abolition. Those of you who are old enough or who like old films will know the film Spartacus, and even if you don't know it, you will know the famous line, which is continually used as a joke, I am Spartacus, or you know, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus. If you don't know it, you really got to watch that film. It's a great, great, great film, along with Gladiator. If you're into talking about um, slaves, Gladiator is slightly more violent. But um, the the guy, that kind of Spartacus movement was actually a real movement where a slave called Spartacus did rebel. And that rebellion led to the deaths of millions of people. It's all very well for us at a very comfortable distance saying, well, we should just say that slavery is wrong. And uh, what Paul should have said was all the slaves should just resign or rebel or whatever. But what if it led to millions of deaths? What if it led to 50 million deaths? What if it led to the complete collapse of the society? So what Paul does, guided by the Holy Spirit, is this. He focuses upon transforming 
the personal relationships within the system. The New Testament does not condone slavery. In fact, it tells us that slave traders go to hell. But it recognizes that slavery exists. The evil lies in the notion that one human being can own another. Why was the New Testament not more explicit in its condemnation of slavery, apart from two or three verses? I think this. First of all, the Christians were a very small group. The whole Roman Empire depended on slavery. Paul described it as the world we're living in as part of this evil age. And there was the, the whole idea that we're going to preach about Jesus Christ, we're going to change the relationships, and that will undermine this. And it did undermine the whole system, and it did revolutionize the whole system. There was something called manumission, which was where slaves were increasingly being freed. Between 81 and 49 BC, over 500,000 slaves had been freed. And there is evidence that as Christianity grew and developed in the first century and in the second century, that there were more and more slaves who were being released. But Paul is dealing not with an idealistic situation, he's dealing with the situation that exists at the time. We could give teaching right now on how we should behave in our work, and we could presuppose that, you, that there was enough work, that you all had perfect jobs, that there were never any bad masters, and you all got paid a just wage, and you all had just great hours, and you're all doing work that you wanted to do. And that teaching would be pointless because it wasn't, it's not what exists. Well, in the same way, Paul could have come out with a theory which said, it would be really, really great if there was no slavery, and that's, you know, let's go for that right now. But it wouldn't have been very practical for the situations that the people who were slaves were already facing. So he deals with this, and he deals with it from a Christian perspective, and as I say, we're going to look at it like that, remembering that context and applying it to our own situation. First of all, the duty of slaves. The first thing to note is here, slaves, obey your earthly masters, is in this context, for somebody like Paul, who was a Roman citizen, who was a leading intellectual, who was a, a, by then a very, very important religious figure, for someone like Paul to even speak to slaves is extraordinary, never mind doing it in the context of a public meeting where this letter would be read out loud to the whole church. It's a bit like some people would regard children. Wait a minute, he's speaking to the children. And the slaves, when they hear this, he's speaking to us. He's talking to us. And that indicates something that's very important. The slaves were accepted members of the Christian community. They were considered to be responsible people. They were considered to be worthy of hearing the Word of God. What's interesting in this, in each of the four verses mentioning slaves here or their perspective, if you look at them, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, every single verse mentions Jesus Christ. And that also is really significant because what Paul is saying to the, to the slaves is, obey your earthly masters, yes, but your focus is not on them. Your focus is on Jesus you move from being men-pleasing to serving Christ. You know how in a school, sometimes there's a pupil who's the teacher's pet, and who's always wanting to do that? Sometimes in a workplace, 
there's the person who, to be honest, we use the phrase brown-nosing, and that's what they're doing. They're, just, they're, they're the ones who are always want, trying to make a good impression to impress the boss so that they can go up the next step up the ladder. Well, Paul gives a different incentive to the slaves. He's saying, look, your work life is to be Christ-centered. And our great need in employment is to see clearly Jesus Christ and to set Him before us. If you only worship Jesus Christ, if you only see Jesus Christ here on a Sunday, then your religion is going to become something that is just religion. It's going to become fake. Instead, you get up tomorrow morning. Let's say you've got to get up and uh, do a really early morning commute. And you're going, oh, why am I doing this? Or you get up and it's a lot of stress and hassle at work. What Paul is teaching us here, what God is teaching us here, is that we have to look at it as doing it for Jesus Christ. So you're a cook, you cook a meal as if Jesus were going to eat it. You clean the house as though Jesus were going to be the guest. Teachers educate children, doctors treat patients, solicitors help clients, shop assistants serve customers, secretaries type as though they were serving Jesus Christ because they are serving Jesus Christ. Annabel told me about somebody she works with who, as far as I know, is not a, a Christian or someone she knows through her work, and said how much she admired him because he treated everyone with respect. Now, I think that we need to be very, very careful when we profess the name of Christ that in our work, we are known for treating people as Jesus would treat people. I think that that is hugely important. If slaves had to obey their masters, then how much more dustmen, doctors, road sweepers, waiters, teachers, nurses, and so on? And he gives us four things that we are to do. We are to show respect, verse 5, with, uh, with respect and with fear. Not cringing, but in Colossians, when Paul teaches the same subject, he says, fearing the Lord. I don't think we should fear any human being, but we should respect those who uh, employ us, or who are our bosses. He also gives a, a, an interesting phrase where he says, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. That's the idea of singleness of heart, integrity, wholeheartedness, without hypocrisy. That means in the office, when the boss comes in and you're going yes, no, yes, no, whatever, when the boss walks out, you don't start saying, oh, what a clown that guy is to your fellow workmates. There's to be no hypocrisy in our service. To be conscientious. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Not eye service as men pleasers. Not working only when the boss is watching. I think uh, there's... There has been an increasing tendency to have people work from home. One of the concerns is that, well, if someone works from home, how do you know that they're really working? And one of the problems, I think, in our culture is there are plenty of people 
who back off from working hard. Remember, a Christian once telling me that they'd gone to work in a particular place and they thought they, right, I've, you know, I've got to take this on board, I've got to work hard. And they fell out with all their workmates because all their workmates, they thought, he thought he was doing his job and he was helping them carry the load. And they were horrified because he was doing twice as much work as them. And they thought, oh no, this is a nightmare. Well, Christians are to be conscientious, to work as working for the Lord, willing and cheerful rather than reluctant and grudging. Heart and soul is in it. And that is difficult because, again, you get up and you're going, oh no, am I on shift again? Have I, you know, I've got to do this. And it's, we use the phrase, the drudgery of work. And sometimes it is. But that's where a perspective has to change. The lady who helps us with the discovery camps, cooking, Marisha, she owned, is it Raffles? No, Raffles or whatever it was down the road on the Perth Road. And um, she was converted. You know how she was converted? Through a guy who came along who was a dishwasher. Just any job he could get. And he got this job as a dishwasher for her. And he was so cheerful and so willing to work and so hardworking that it just, she was just puzzled by him. And it was through that that she eventually, that was the beginning of her becoming a Christian. We do this. Why do we do it? Because we know the Lord is our judge. We know that no good work will ever go unrewarded by Him. So those principles that are there, show respect, singleness of heart, conscientious, and willing and cheerful rather than reluctant and grudging. Some of you, uh, myself included as well actually, sometimes we have to repent of our attitudes as regards work. And we, we need to reinstill in ourselves what used to be called the Protestant work ethic, which was not as some people think, that you're, the idea that you go out and you're trying to make as much money as you can for yourself. But it was just that work itself was a good thing, was a dignified thing, and that it was something that was worthwhile and should be valued and should be encouraged. I found it a very sad indictment on our own culture and on our own society a number of years ago, 5,000 Poles came to Dundee around this area. Now, I'm not saying the Poles coming was an indictment. I think the Poles coming was fantastic. And you get Polish shop and Polish barbers. And um, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, Ian Clegg is particularly grateful for Poles who come. But it's, it's, what got me was I asked one of the counselors about where, where do the Poles get all this, get the work? Are they in work? He said, oh, yeah. He says, they're all working. He says, well, where do they get the work? He says, well, they're doing work that Dundonians won't do. Which is shocking. That's just absolutely appalling. I'm absolutely delighted the Poles came here and the Eastern Europeans and, and many, many others. But the notion that, that people were coming and doing work that this, the, um, uh, we have a lot of Muslims now in our street, as you know, and, and by the way, today is Eid and we pray for the, 
Muslim people. I was speaking to our neighbor just when I came out to come down uh, to the church. And when I cycled down the church this morning, virtually on every street, I met people who were celebrating Eid. Many of the Muslims here, some are African, but many of the Muslims, the vast majority, are Pakistani or Indian. Why did they come to Dundee? They came to work in the mills. Why did they come to work in the mills? Because Dundonians wouldn't do it anymore. It really is, that was in the 1950s. I know there are lots and lots, it's not quite as simple as I'm putting it, but it is the case that there's an awful lot of people who are growing up in our culture who think, well, unless I get a job that's 20 hours a week and pays me 40 grand for doing nothing, then why should I bother working? And the answer is you bother working because work's a good thing. You bother working because it's part of your dignity as a human being. Sometimes there are people who can't work. As I said that already, that's a different issue. But and when we can, to refuse is, uh, I think, disastrous in lots of ways. And when we have work, then let's try and have this attitude. Now, Paul doesn't finish there, of course, because verses 9 uh, onwards, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. And this is how Christianity works. In many ways, it's very subtle, but it's much more realistic. The golden rule. Treat them, treat your slaves in the same way. The way they treat you, you treat them. You treat them with respect. You serve them as you can. There's no superiority where you can ignore the basic rules of human conduct. We say, we would have said up until a few years ago, we had no slavery. As I've said already, we do. But in many situations, in in factory floors, in shops, in offices and elsewhere, you will get people who think they're really superior and treat people with contempt. Um, I'm going to mention nine wells because I just I find it intriguing, this, the whole relationships between cleaners and nurses, and then there's the kind of auxiliary nurses, and then the nurses, and then the, the one with the blue uniform is like boss, and then doctors, junior doctors, senior doctors, and surgeons. And... It's amazing to me to hear sometimes um, one or two of the surgeons described as people who just treat everyone else as being beneath them and with contempt. That's absolutely appalling. I don't think it's indicative of everybody. Or you might get doctors thinking, well, nurses are kind of beneath us. You may even get nurses who think, well, cleaners are beneath us. Cleaners might think that they're at the bottom of the pile. I don't know. But a Christian who is in that context, a Christian who's in charge of a ward, a Christian who's a manager on a factory floor, a Christian who runs a shop, has to behave in this way where everyone is treated with respect. Treat your employees with respect. I'll give you one example from the farming industry. I, for a a while during holidays, used to work uh, for a man called Willie Gordon. I will name him. um, Up in Bindle Farm near Port Mahomet. And... uh, he was, a, he was a great man, a, a Christian man. He retired, and the farm was passed on, and all the rest of it. 
But I remember um, one incident where a couple of laborers who had worked on his farm for many years were staying, as they did, in a tied house, in a cottage. And there were those who wanted to, quote-unquote, improve the farm. And so they wanted to uh, move these men off the cottages, and then they could rent out the cottages and so on. And he just said simply, no, these men have worked for me all their lives, and I'm not going to throw them out. Now, that's treating people with respect and treating people with dignity. Don't threaten, he says. You don't threaten them. A relationship based on threats is not a human relationship at all. And then remember that Christ is the master of both. There is no partiality with Him. Jesus is the model for all those who are in authority, treating others with respect and dignity. So I think these relationships are based upon three principles. I'll just name them. First is equality, in that we are all made in the image of God. The second is justice, because uh, God Himself is a just God. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Somebody who, who pays wages, who thinks, well, a way that I can personally make more money for myself or more profit is by cutting the wages of my employees, that's a very dangerous situation for a Christian to find themselves in. Pay a fair wage. If you go to James chapter 5, you'll see an extraordinary statement that's given in the, uh, right in the, in the heart of the New Testament, where James makes this assertion, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Surely there's something vastly wrong in our world when as a result of speculation in stock markets and gambling by the elite of bankers, if you like, food prices rocket so that the poor suffer. When those men went into that restaurant in London and spent 60,000 pounds on, just on wine, and they got the meal for free, and boasted that they were the masters of the universe, people may laugh, may smile, may go, that was a bit disgusting. But what's disgusting is that when they lose money, when they gamble with other people's money, then it's the poor in Africa and elsewhere who really, really suffer. And Paul just tells us simply, look, if you've got a position of responsibility, if you've got a position of power, if you've got a position of money, use that to serve and to help other people. If you look very carefully at the history of British industry, you'll find over and over again um, firms like Cadbury's, firms like uh, the holiday firm Thompson's and others were, were started up and were developed by Christians who believed in these principles. 
when they move away from these principles, I think there's many, many things that are wrong. So there's equality, there's justice, paying a fair wage in particular, and the third is brotherhood. Again, Paul, back in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and verse 11, let me just read that to you. Colossians 3.11 says this, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You can go to churches in the United States in the South which still have this, just as a historical thing. You, you have the bit upstairs that's the slave quarters and the bit downstairs that was for the non-slaves. There's a church, the churches in Scotland that are still like this and churches in England as well, older churches. You can have parts of the church, that's where the squire sat, that's where the landlord sat, and that's where the rest. In the New Testament church, there is no distinction made in this. Now, that is revolutionary. It's not revolutionary saying you're going to overthrow the system and create new masters and new bosses and new ways of doing things. The revolutionary way in the New Testament was to change the relationship and to treat people as those who are made in the image of God. Slavery was changed from within. I read an article a couple of weeks ago which said that what was wrong with British banking, what was wrong with so much of British industry nowadays was just simply the lack of a moral compass and the corruption that is endemic in the culture. Well, that's because we move away from these roots. And this is where we as Christians are to be salt and light, where we are to, to shine as those who serve with our whole heart and with our whole mind. So you're going off to work tomorrow. You might even be going to work tonight. You're going off to work. Just please think about the attitude and pray about the attitude and pray that God would enable you to serve Him and to glorify Him and to provide for others and to provide for yourself and to provide for your family and to provide for his people, and to enjoy being somebody who is in the image of God, who has the privilege and the pleasure of being able to work for Him. I met with a man this week who has difficulties in his work, but his attitude, I thought, was absolutely fantastic as a Christian. He just simply said this. He said, I'm so thankful to have a job and to be able to serve. And I think that is uh, the Christian attitude. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you that it teaches us so clearly and so practically. Thank you that our lives are to be focused on you, that these slaves, some of whom were perhaps being mistreated, some of whom would have really struggled in their circumstances, yet had been set free by you, and as you taught through your servant Paul, in everything that they did, in everything that they had, they were to focus upon you. And so, oh Lord, we pray that as we go into this week, some of us into quite difficult work situations, some of us with in incredible responsibilities, responsibilities for other people, some of us, oh Lord, just wishing we had another job, whatever our particular circumstances, some of us even wishing we had a job at all, we ask that you would enable us to serve with glad and cheerful hearts, knowing that what we do is ultimately done for you. May that be our motivation, and may that be our desire.
And uh, if we ourselves cannot do that because we are far from you, oh Lord, we ask that even in thinking about this, that we would be drawn to you. In your name we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.